Life is hard. Life with chronic, critical, and complex health concerns is even harder. We all know someone who is struggling with health issues or disability. It might even be you. And in the pain and suffering, we wonder if it's possible to move from surviving to thriving. We struggle to hope, struggle to persevere, struggle to trust that God knows what He's doing. But in the struggle, there is real hope, and it's possible to be rooted and ready to weather the storm. Welcome to the Bluestem Project Podcast. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back to the Bluestem Project Podcast. It's good to be here with you, and it's my sincere hope that by listening, you're better equipped and encouraged for the journey of suffering, hardship, and trial that comes with health issues and disability. It's my prayer that you're drawn closer to God and rooted deeper in His Son, Jesus Christ. In this episode, we're continuing our series on considering Jesus from Hebrews 12.3, which says, Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In the previous episode, uh, we ended with Herod the Tetrarch treating Jesus with contempt and mocking him, while he and Pontius Pilate are determining what to do with the charges that the chief priests and the elders have brought against him and their desires to see him put to death. We turn now to Jesus' encounter with Pontius Pilate and the hostility he endures from a powerful, unjust, and cruel magistrate. But first, let's start with this. One of the most popular shows to come out in recent memory was titled Making a Murderer. And if you haven't watched it, let me just kind of fill you in on why it was so popular. So it chronicled the life of a guy named Stephen Avery, a very blue-collar Wisconsin man who was judged guilty of sexual assault and attempted murder. But then after 18 years, was acquitted. He, he, was, he was totally innocent. And the Netflix series, Making a Murder, was a viral hit. You could say uh, it really was the talk of America for a period of time. And of particular fascination was that Avery was then accused of another murder and convicted for it only four years after his wrongful conviction. And as the title of the show suggests, poor Stephen Avery was the victim of a corrupt justice system in his first conviction, and possibly again in the second one. That's left to a degree up to the viewer to, t- to kind of judge. But why was this such a runaway hit? I believe it was because it hits on themes and fears that are rooted deeply in the human heart. Let me explain. At the core of the show is about power dynamics. Here's Avery, this blue-collar common man. He's of lower intelligence, lower status. He runs an auto salvage yard, and he's against the powerful justice system. These men and women in positions of authority who can make completely life-altering decisions. And in fact, in between his wrongful conviction and then his subsequent murder conviction, he sued Manitowoc County in a civil suit for his 18 years in jail and the ruining of his reputation, and he won. And of a, of a side note, one of my good friends actually grew up in Manitowoc County and was neighbors and family friends with the sheriff who was featured prominently in the show as l- this likely corrupt guy. And so I, w- I was having conversations with my friend, texting about, you know, what was this guy like? What was going on while I was watching the show? But the, the show hits on power dynamics. And the second theme I think that's rooted in our hearts is justice. Human beings are deeply moral creatures. We have a deep desire for what is right to be exalted and what is wrong to be punished. And yet, while we have these desires, we live in a, in a crazy circus within our own, even our own hearts and minds where we know what is right and we don't do it. And we know what is wrong and we do do it. And so we deal with sin and fear and shame and guilt. And yet we still 
desire justice. And from these first two themes, power and justice, I think emerges a deep fear from within our hearts, and it's this. What if those in power and authority over me and my family use their power not for what is just, but what is unjust? In other words, like, what if my of what if I or my family get accused of something we didn't do and we're locked away? What if our lives are completely taken away from us? And anyone who's a student of history has had this fear stoked in their hearts. We've heard a lot of stories and seen a lot of examples of this. And even if it's but a small glowing ember back in the recesses of our heart, largely forgotten about and unlikely, we know circumstances outside of our control could fan that little ember of fear of what would a, a corrupt, powerful magistrate do to me? It could fan that little ember into flame. And I think the third heart theme that shows up in the show is compassion. Indeed, regarding his first trial and wrongful conviction, every sensible person is moved with compassion for Avery. Here's this man who lost much of his life, his reputation and time. I mean, it's 18 years. He can never get back. And the show causes you to reach down deep inside of you, or you could say it reaches down deep inside of you and opens up the, the spigot of your compassion, and you can hardly help but let it gush, gush out. Put these three things together, power, justice, and compassion, and the show evokes a deep and pulls out of you passion and emotion. Average people, right, who are uh, expecting another, you know, Netflix and chill uh, experiment or experience become obsessed with power and justice, compassion, and fear. And there's a lot more to the Stephen Avery story, especially regarding the legitimacy of his second conviction, whether it was just or not. And I'm not going to get into speculating with that here. But I do want to point this out. Did you know that Jesus, as the God-man, experienced incredible hostility in the arena of justice? Jesus stood before a man who had the power to free him or crucify him. Jesus lived through the greatest injustice the world has ever known. I don't say that lightly. I'm not using hyperbole. Jesus lived through the greatest injustice the world has ever known. And he was denied any type of compassion by a judge wielding incredible power. Jesus stood before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. So before we read in the Gospels about Jesus' encounter with Pontius Pilate, I want to help you guys understand a little bit about who he was and the military, political, social, and religious context in which the events that we're about to read took place. So who was Pontius Pilate from history? We actually don't know a whole lot about his early life, but we can deduce from our knowledge of Roman culture at the time that he likely came from wealth, uh, was educated, and probably lived in Roman high society. Keeping with the Roman pattern of how they appointed leaders to power, he and his family were probably connected to the emperor Tiberius, who was emperor from 14 to 37 AD, and who appointed him prefect of Judea in 26 AD, a position he would hold until 36 AD. And it's, it's likely that he had military and administrative experience because these were qualifications the Romans held in high esteem and necessity for such a job. We have three sources that tell us about Pilate. The New Testament's one, uh, the Jew uh, Philo of Alexandria, and the historian who was also a Jew, Josephus. And Philo described Pilate like this, quote, a man of inflexible, stubborn, and cruel disposition, end quote. These were all characteristics which to some degree were probably necessary in Roman eyes for competent governance, but this is who this man was and what he was like. So as ruler over Jews in Judea, 
and yet still beholden to Rome, and his heart is in Rome. That's who he is. He's a Roman. Pilate had to walk this fine line of trying to satisfy both in some regards. So Rome would grant the Jews social and religious space to conduct their worship of Yahweh. And in fact, we see that when Jesus is brought before Pilate by the chief priests and the elders, that he comes out of his governor's headquarters to meet them outside. And the reason he did this is that the Passover was at hand, and the Jews were not going to enter defiled Gentile space and become unclean and unable to eat the Passover. So Pilate honors the request by meeting them outside. And yet while Pilate and Rome in general allowed for some religious tolerance, they also disdained Jewish religion. So think about what was even insinuated by the chief priests and the elders in this example I just gave you, that Pilate and his headquarters of Roman space and religion were unclean and disdainable to them. Right? This is a reality that's not lost on him in the moment. It's a reality not lost on him in general. And both Philo and Josephus record that Pilate took money from the temple treasury and constructed an aqueduct some 50 miles long with it. And, I mean, certainly, this would have enraged the Jews. You know, if you gave money to a church or a nonprofit, and the government stole it and used it for other purposes, you'd be pretty mad too. Uh, but Pilate did this. And it was probably perhaps even an example or a demonstration of the power that Pilate and Rome had over them. It's also recorded that Pilate minted coins with pagan symbols and placed emperor worship images around Jerusalem. These acts incensed the Jews under his control and served as, again, an additional reminder of his power over them. He was ruler, they were plebe. They could get mad, but they couldn't really stop him. But what, what they could do is cause such an unrest in the area as to possibly force a bad report back to Rome about his governance. Rome might think, gosh, Pilate can't keep under control the people in his jurisdiction, and he would lose favor and perhaps even his place as ruler. And the Jews do, in fact, as we'll see, leverage this small advantage against Pilate to get Jesus crucified. We'll see that Pilate's power is not set upon a firm foundation of love for the truth, justice, and compassion. He is the type of judge ruler we all would fear standing before. And thank goodness most of us never will stand before such a ruler. But Jesus did, and he did it for you and for me. All four Gospels record in some measure Jesus standing before Pilate, and each gives us insight, but the account that I'm going to focus on primarily is in John. So let's turn there to John 18, verse 28. It says this, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fill the, fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So this would have been Pilate's first order of business for the day. Whatever he had planned on doing is now on the back burner. The religious and social leaders of the people under his governance have assembled in mass, really, to bring someone to trial before him. He has to deal with it. But his first response is he doesn't really want to deal with it. He says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But in asking or in giving them that statement, he really gets his first indication of how serious the situation is in their response, because they say it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, right? So for Pilate, you know, it's like this isn't 
your, your normal day in the life of being a, a Roman governor. And an incredible tension is set. Pilate has allegiance to Rome, his responsibility to maintain order and execute justice, versus the wishes and demands of his Jewish subjects and the envy and bloodthirstiness that they are about to demonstrate. But verse 32, the last verse that I read, is a reminder that in the events that are about to follow, the choices of human actors are under the sovereign plan of God. Jesus is not going to get justice from man's court, but even this grievous sin on their part still fits into God's plan. Let's continue reading. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Now, I've given a, a sermon before on the, that, that last little verse where Pilate said, What is truth? And there's an awful lot in this passage that we could unpack, but we're going to have to take out a few of the true things that are said here and not all of them. But first, like what occurs here is Jesus and Pilate discuss power. And Jesus, perhaps in a soft, matter-of-fact fashion, informs Pilate of the real power dynamics that are in play. And this discussion ensues about Jesus' kingship. Pilate asking him, point blank, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus giving a soft assertion of his power and authority as king. He says, you know, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. This probably and almost certainly would have been a shocking conversation for Pilate to have with Jesus, this man bound and placed before him under his, you know, he's really in a earthly or human sense at Pilate's mercy. And Pilate, being a proud and arrogant man, would have known that and probably in his heart disdained Jesus. And so when he says and makes the statement, what is truth, he doesn't even wait for the answer. Jesus, you know, says his purpose. I'm here to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's on the side of truth listens to my voice. I mean, Pilate's got to be almost out of his mind hearing that. But what Jesus' statement about his purpose of bearing witness to the truth, everyone listening to, you know, on the side of truth, listening to his voice, does is it reveals something to us about Pontius Pilate. He says, what is truth? And as I mentioned, he doesn't wait around for the answer. Here, Truth incarnate is standing before him. He doesn't know it, and he doesn't really investigate it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Pilate says, what is truth? And what we, what we see now is that moving forward, we're dealing with a powerful judge ruler who's going to preside over Jesus' trial, and he's not a lover of truth and not ultimately a lover of justice. Let's continue reading. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. 
So Pilate states here, he says, I find no guilt in him. And when you cross-reference the account here in John with Luke, in Luke it's mentioned four times, or Pilate states four times, that he believes Jesus is innocent. This is Luke 23, 24. Pilate says to the chief priests and rulers, he says this, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Pilate had also sent Jesus to Herod for questioning. And he relays in verse 15 what occurred. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. So Pilate really does believe that Jesus does not deserve death. But then what Pilate does after stating that is he gives the Jews an option and he is kind of giving himself an option or a way to release Jesus because he had this custom where he would release a prisoner at the time of the Passover, someone who was guilty of a crime. He would let them go free. So he gives them the option. Do you want, you want Jesus or do you want Barabbas, who was a robber? And in one of the other gospel accounts, we're told that Barabbas uh, was imprisoned for insurrection and murder. So he's a robber, an insurrectionist, and a murder. And Pilate is going to give them the choice of these two men. But he really, he really mocks the Jews that are standing before him because he says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? In other words, Jesus has claimed this. He's claimed that he's the son of God, and that's why they want to kill him. So Pilate stating that as who he is is definitely infuriating to them, and they're going to end up choosing Barabbas. Let's continue on in John's account. This is verse 19 of chapter 19. So then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So Pilate, he takes Jesus and flogs him, and they, the soldiers with him end up twisting together a crown of thorns and put a purple robe on him, and, and they're mocking him. But then he brings him out and states, you know, I see I'm bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. And I honestly think that Pilate is, is hoping that this will satisfy their wrath and their anger. For Pilate to flog Jesus is an incredibly brutal and painful process. So flogging involved a whip with multiple cords embedded with little pieces of rock or bone that would absolutely just rip up and destroy the back and the flesh of someone who was flogged with it. So he does that and brings him out, this bloodied, you know, flesh and skin hanging off, mangled man who's also mocked. 
And he states, I find no guilt in him. And I, and I honestly believe he's hoping that they are satisfied with that. I mentioned that Pilate is a man without much compassion. And here, not only does he flog Jesus, but he presides over the soldiers mocking. They, they put thorns on him. They put a purple robe. You could only wear a purple robe in, in Rome if you were royalty. So in all likelihood, this robe had to come from Pilate himself. The average person couldn't just have a purple robe. And apparently, he was willing to allow this expensive, rare purple robe that was used only for royalty to be ruined by Jesus' blood because they put it on his, his mangled back, his bloody back. And it was worth it to him to have this done and to see this done because the mocking was enjoyable or a reasonable response to Pilate. Now, I want to say again, in this last portion we just read, that twice Pilate states he doesn't find any guilt in him. And we also see in here that Pilate is actually a bit fearful. In verses 7 and 8, the Jews end up saying like, hey, he, according to our law, he should die because he made himself the son of God. It states in verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. So what is he afraid of? He's afraid of, in part, how serious this is to the Jews and what could happen if it gets out of hand. He, he also knows why Jesus is there. Because in, in Matthew's account, when it's talking about Pilate gives them the option of releasing Barabbas or Jesus, it states in Matthew 27, 18, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Dealing with envious, bitter people will get your, will get your, your attention and get your blood up. And that's who Pilate is dealing with. We also know from the gospel accounts that Pilate had been warned by his wife that Jesus is righteous and that he should have nothing to do with him. She says, I've suffered much in a dream because of him, have nothing to do with this righteous man. And so Pilate, he's fearful of the Jews. He's fearful of what could get out of hand. Pilate would give weight to what his wife said. She, she certainly believed that by sending him a message about not dealing with Jesus, that he would listen. So he knows that Jesus, at least his, his Roman wife, has said, hey, he's a righteous man. And we're told also in Matthew's account that the situation is moving toward a riot. It says this in Matthew 27, 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, th this is when he ends up washing his hands and saying, I'm, my hands are, are free of this. You guys take him you know, and do what you want, which ultimately isn't really him just giving him up to them. He's giving him up to crucifixion. See, these people want blood, and not only do they want blood, they want torture. They're, they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. So the, the fear that Pilate has, he's dealing with envious people. His wife's warned him. A riot's beginning, and the crowd has this fury, as we'll see next in John's account, then the people also blackmail him with his Roman allegiance. Let's continue on. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? 
The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. I want to summarize what has occurred throughout this entire passage. So the chief priests and elders bring Jesus to Pilate because they want the death penalty. And under Roman rule, they've been stripped of that ability. So they have to bring him to Pilate, the only man who can. Pilate knows the motive for Jesus being handed over as envy. Pilate listens to their accusations. He talks with Jesus briefly. He hears a few answers from Jesus and is also stunned by Jesus' silence. And he determines that Jesus does not deserve death. He even says, I found nothing in all your accusations. And he sends Jesus to be examined by Herod, who also says he's not worthy of death and isn't guilty. Pilate hears from his wife a warning that Jesus is righteous and he should have nothing to do with him. Uh, Her testimony carries weight with him. She wouldn't send a, a message if she knew it would be disregarded. Pilate's dealing with furious, raging, envious, bloodthirsty people. Even flogging Jesus is not enough. We know that Pilate doesn't ultimately care about truth and justice. He condemns Jesus to death even though he knows he's innocent. He presides over the mocking of Jesus with a crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate has no compassion. He not only sends an innocent man to death that he knows is innocent, he sends him to a torturous one, crucifixion. Pilate had full authority to release Jesus, which also means he had full authority to execute him by more quick and humane means. He could hang him, he could behead him. But he gives in to the envious, bloodthirsty screams of the crowd, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And we know that Pilate frees a man, Barabbas, who committed murder and insurrection at this request of the crowd, and he crucifies an innocent man, Jesus, at the request of a a crowd. The chief priests... And the crowd who are before Pilate and are chanting for Jesus to be crucified, he gets blackmailed by them. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. They're really saying to Pilate, you have to do something about this guy. If you don't, if you let this innocent man go, even though he has said he's a king, you're not living up to to your Roman responsibilities. And then they go a step farther and say, we have no king but Caesar, which is an absolute denial of everything God's word has stated for his people, the Jews, in the Old Testament leading up to this time. I want to go back to our our theme verse. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus, the most innocent man on earth, was sent and condemned to a torturous and painful death that he did not deserve. But he did it for you and for me. He endured this hostility from a powerful ruler, didn't care about the truth, didn't really, well, didn't give him justice, who disregarded the dubious motive for his arrest, envy. Jesus endured a ruler without compassion. And as I just said, he endured it all for you and for me. Let me read from 1 Peter 2, 22 to 25. Very powerful passage. It says this, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Can I ask, have you returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls? Jesus, the innocent one who was crucified and punished on a cross for our sins. This Jesus who entrusted himself to the will of his father. He wasn't a a powerless victim, and he knew as much. He told Pilate, you'd have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. Let me read Acts 4.27, which really summarizes what went on here. It says this, For in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God, through Jesus, has provided a way of salvation for forgiveness of sins, for the removal of his wrath for sin. He's offered new life, adoption into his family, comfort, peace, eternal life, and the hope of a resurrected body. Consider Jesus, who stood innocent before a corrupt judge and endured crucifixion for you. Find comfort and strength in him so that you do not become weary and faint-hearted. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Blue Stem Project. It's been a pleasure having you. I remind you that the Blue Stem Project exists to equip and encourage you in the suffering, hardships, and trials of life that come with health issues and disability. We do this by helping root you in Christ and by giving you the tools you need to be ready for life's greatest obstacles. It'd be an honor to take this journey with you. Please do hit the subscribe button and tell a friend or family member experiencing health issues and medical disability about the Blue Stem Project. Thank you.